All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and turn with me. Daniel chapter 9 is where we'll be. We are slowly but surely working our way through the book of Daniel, and we'll finish off Daniel 9 this morning. I don't know if you've seen this in the news or not, but they, uh, there's this new drug out there, okay, a church where you can come get all your drug information, all right? There's a new drug uh, called Crocodile. Has anyone seen this? No? Okay, well, you're in luck, all right? It's uh, started in, in Ukraine and, and kind of in some other European countries over there, um, but we've now seen it in a couple places in America, a couple of middle school girls, actually, um, were admitted to the hospital under the influence of Crocodile. It is, they're saying, maybe the most destructive kind of drug we've ever seen before. Uh, so apparently it's morphine times 8 to 10. Uh, and morphine takes effect over about six to eight hours. Um, crocodile, which is kind of a euphemism for it, takes effect in like 30 minutes to an hour. That's how long it lasts. So 10 times the effect of morphine for an hour, and then you drop, right? And so then, I mean, it becomes really addictive really fast. And the effects on person's body is brutal. Um, so I'm sure you've seen like the before and after of meth, right? I promise you this is going to be okay. This is like a really Debbie Downer way to start a sermon, right? Um, but the before and after pictures of, of like a meth addict um, and seeing like the destruction it takes on their body. Um, crocodile gets its name because apparently it starts to eat away at your flesh. And so first your flesh literally turns into like scales. And they say it looks remarkably like a crocodile. Uh, and then before long you start amputating limbs and those kind of things. Anyways, so let's try to lighten the mood a little bit. I, uh, <laughs> I was reading these news reports and I remembered, I hadn't seen the show in a while, but one of my favorite shows used to be Intervention. Are you familiar with the show? Um, so someone has this kind of problem or addiction in their life and their family like, gathers around them, okay? If you ever walk into a room and like all the people you know and love are there like looking serious, it's like, uh-oh, what's going on, okay? You're being interventioned, all right? Um, and they would sit them down and they'd say, this is what you're doing wrong and this is why you need to stop that. We love you. We need to lead you out of that. And I always thought that that show, Intervention, was such a fitting metaphor for the Christian life and for what it is as a Christian to, to walk out of sin and to slowly but surely realize, you know, the destructiveness of sin and, and the death that sin brings, and then to try to walk out of it. And, and the show kind of chronicles how hard it can be for some of these people to walk out of addictions. And I don't know if you've ever tried to, like, stop sinning, right, or to, to transform kind of your character or your behavior patterns, but it can often feel kind of like an addiction. It can kind of feel like something that you keep going back into and back into and back into. And so on this show, Intervention, they've got to develop this kind of process, right? They've got to develop a plan of action to walk out of Again, these destructive patterns of life and into to new life, into new behavior. Um, and I, I think it's such an apt metaphor for what it is that you and I as Christians are called to do. So Martin Luther would say repentance, this act of leaving our sin and, and walking new life. Um, when the Lord says, he says, when the Lord says repent, um, he wills that the entire life of a believer be one of repentance. Um, that every day we should be repenting. Every day we should be walking away from our sin and slowly but surely turning towards life. That repentance is not this this one-time thing we do when we become a Christian, but it's supposed to be this kind of daily habit where we daily, slowly, surely, consistently, steadily turn from our sin and turn toward <coughs> God in Christ. Um, now, I bring this up because the passage we'll see in Daniel 9 here um, posits this very strong link between repentance and life. And, and in fact, this is something we'll see that is throughout the entire Bible. There's this connection, inherent link between the act of repenting and turning from our sin and then finding and receiving life. And so I want to explore that with you this morning and invite us to think about perhaps how we might um, create these daily habits of repentance in our lives. So we're picking up in, in chapter 9, 
We're going to read verse 20 through 27, um, but real quick, just to get you caught up, um, let's read the first few verses of chapter 9 so you can see what's happening here. You remember that Daniel and the Israelites have been taken off into exile because of their sin, so they have been captured by Babylon, uh, and so they're living in punishment in a foreign land uh, because of their sin, and so um, this is toward the end of their time in exile in Babylon. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So there's a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah that the exile, this time of punishment in the foreign land, would last for 70 years. It's actually been close to 70 years. Um, Daniel historically is not too far from seeing the Israelites allowed to go back to their home under the Persians. And so he sees this prophecy. He senses that the exile is about to be over. Um, and so he responds accordingly. He says in, in verse 3, Then I turn my face to the Lord God. I turn to God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So he goes on to pray, and it's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of repentance, okay? And so last week we talked about the role of prayer in our lives as we seek to follow God. Um, and as he's praying, he finishes his prayer all the way through verse 19, and we'll pick up in verse 20, which is where we left off last week, okay? So he's praying, he senses the exile is about to be over, these 70 years are almost up, and in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell, you, tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So Daniel's praying. Gabriel, the angel, gets sent on a mission to go explain um, God's plan to Daniel. So this is, this is pretty awesome if you're Daniel, okay? I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm praying about things that I'm kind of anxious about. I kind of don't understand fully. And I would love, right, if I started praying about it, for God to send an angel with the word, right? And he shows up on knowing the prayer and says, okay, let me explain this to you. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. So Daniel gets this encouraging vision from uh, Daniel, uh, Gabriel. And then look in verse 24, here's what Gabriel says about um, God's plan, what's going to happen. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, so these first two words here in, in, in verse 24, 70 weeks, this Hebrew word for weeks can also mean sevens. Okay, 77. You'll see in your note, if you're in the ESV Bible, at the bottom there'll be a little note that says, or sevens, and it occurs also in verse 25 and verse 26. In fact, we think this is the best way to interpret, to translate this phrase. So what you have here in 24 is 70 sevens. 70 times seven. 490 years are decreed about your people in your holy city for the exile to end. What's happening is Gabriel is expanding the 70-year period of punishment. Okay, so so... Daniel has interpreted from the book of Jeremiah that's going to last for 70 years. Gabriel shows up and says 70 times 7. 70 sevens years until your sin is taken care of. Until this time of punishment, this time of transgression and sin is over. 
70 times 7, 490 years, are decreed about your people and your holy city. What's happening here is most likely there is um, a few places, particularly Leviticus 26, 28, you can see this, where God says, if my people do not repent, I will punish them sevenfold. So the idea seems to be that this 70-year period of exile is now being repeated seven times because God's people have not repented properly. They have not turned from their sin properly. Um, So he shows up, not really the greatest news in the world, um, but 70 weeks, 70 sevens are decreed for your people. And he says this, Know therefore and understand that from going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, of a Messiah, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Seventy seven sevens. And then for sixty two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So he kind of splits up these 77s, okay, into different portions. Um, you've got 69 at first in two parts, and then you've got this last week. An anointed one is going to come. Bad things are going to happen, and then the time will be over. Now, this one passage has been hotly contested for years and years and years and years. Obviously, if you're just reading along, you can probably get the sense that there's a lot of weird things happening here. Okay, what does this mean? What exactly is going on? Um, A couple things. We have, throughout the book of Daniel, said we want to avoid Bible coding. Okay? We want to avoid using the symbols um, that you find in in Daniel and trying to, like, map out uh, world history. Okay? So, 490 years, a lot of people in various ways have tried to map this out in a whole bunch of different scenarios. Okay? If you remember a couple years ago, there was a guy named Harold Camping who predicted the end of the world. Kind of got a little bit of steam. Uh, he thought Jesus was going to come back. This passage actually played a pretty big role in his like calendar and his formula for figuring out the exact date when Jesus is coming back. Um, again, people have done this for a long time. We need to kind of avoid it. Okay, We need to kind of avoid trying to use this like a little code to figure out exactly what's happening. Uh, I would point this out to you. Um, the most obvious thing that's happening here is Gabriel saying 70 doesn't mean 70. Right? I mean, the prophecy in Jeremiah was 70 years the exile will end. Gabriel shows up and says that 70 equals 70 times 7. So really what Gabriel's doing is, is almost warning you against that, right? I mean, you can't map this thing out. You can't map out when this punishment, when this exile will be over. But as Christians, most Christians would read this and say, this 490 years, um, once it passes from the time the exile takes place, is approximately the time of Jesus. Jesus who comes. Jesus who comes, in a sense, to end the punishment that has been inflicting Israel to atone for their sins and to atone for the sins of the whole world, that this finds its fulfillment in the life, in the ministry of Israel. Um, Jerusalem, the temple, um, as it's prophesied here, falls in 70 AD. Um, Christ, again, is cut off. He atones for sins. Transgression is over. Um, He has come to to end the exile. Again, if you look through the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark opens up with this theme, that the exile's ending. He quotes from Isaiah um, words of comfort to the exile, saying, one is coming, he's now going to end your punishment. Now, the, the good news here for Daniel is this. It's that God is going to end the exile. So there is this time of punishment because of your sins, but it's going to end. Okay, It might last longer than you anticipated. It might last longer than the 70 years you had mapped out, but it's going to end. And in fact, when the Israelites got back to the land after approximately 70 years, they go back to the land, but they still talk about themselves as if they're in exile. 
because they're still not free. The Persians have let them go back, but they're still <coughs> ruled by the Persians, and then by the Greeks, and then by the Romans. And so when Jesus shows up, the Israelites are under Roman persecution, and they're in the land, but they say, we're still in exile. We're still being punished. We still haven't returned to the life that God had promised us and promised the world. And Jesus shows up and says, the time is, the time is here. Now God's promises are coming true. The exile is going to end, but it might last longer than perhaps Daniel had realized here um, way back when during the Babylonian reign. And its end is going to require repentance and deliverance. Okay? The reason the Israelites are in exile and the reason the whole world, in a sense, is in exile, kicked out of the garden, is because they have sinned, because they have transgressed. And, and so they're punished. They're kicked out of God's presence. And to return throughout the scriptures, the, the, the kind of requirement is repentance. God will deliver you. And you must repent. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, in Genesis, it's prophesied. Um, when you go into exile, when you fail, when you break the covenant, and when you're kicked out, turn back to the Lord, and he'll receive you back. Seek his face, and you will find life. Repent. Go back to the Lord. And so this is why Daniel has adopted this posture of repentance. Okay? He senses the exile, and the sense it's coming to an end. And so he says, my appropriate role as one of God's people is to repent is to confess my sins, to find out my sins, and to turn back to God. Now, as we've read the book of Daniel, we have adopted this kind of metaphor for our life, seeing ourselves, in a sense, as exiles, as resident aliens. While Jesus has come, and he has died on the cross, and the kingdom has been inaugurated, um, the world as we know it still is not fully back from exile, from the big exile, Genesis 3, right? We were in the garden, in close relationship with God, and then because of sin, we were removed from the garden, and all you have to do is look around at the world, right, and realize we're not back yet. It started, Jesus has come, there's real victory to be found there, but as of today, we still yet await the exile. We are like Daniel, living in a foreign land, surrounded by people who aren't us, who don't know the God that we know, who don't worship the God that we worship. And I want to suggest this morning that our posture as we wait for the ultimate exile to end should be the same as Daniel's here, it's, it's repentance, Repentance. Repent and you will be delivered. The exile will come through repentance. As one scholar says, the end of the exile does not come automatically. It requires confession and repentance. Um, there's a Middle Age uh, interpreter, interpreter from the Middle Ages, Rupert of Dutes. He says this, Daniel 9 is an image of another greater captivity, a captivity in which the one son of Adam befell the entire human race. These 70 years of captivity signified all time in which the people of God make pilgrimage in this age. Daniel senses the exiles coming to an end. He patiently hopes for God to bring life, and he understands his role in that process is to repent, to confess. There's this link, this intrinsic link between repentance and life, almost as if life can't be had without repentance. Almost as if, in a sense, repentance is a requirement for life to be found. I want to suggest that this is a link you'll find throughout the scripture. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 13. And let's look at Jesus and a teaching he gives on this theme of repentance. Daniel, as a faithful exile, adopts a posture of repentance. I believe you and I, as faithful exiles, waiting for God to finish his promises, recreate heaven and earth. You and I, as well, should adopt this this posture of repentance, as Luther says, every day should be a day of repentance for us. Um, look in Luke 13. We'll pick it up in verse 1. This is Jesus speaking um, when we get to the quote here. 13.1. 
There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this kind of massacre had taken place um, in Jerusalem. Some Galileans had died at the hands of the Romans. And Jesus answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way. So he says, okay, do you think that the reason they died in this massacre is because they were worse people? That God's punishing them directly because they are worse than you. They're, They're more sinful than you are. Now, to some Christians, the answer is an obvious yes. I mean, you still hear this in the news, right? A tornado comes, a hurricane comes, this happens, this happens, and God's judging them because they're homosexuals. Or God's doing this or that or this or that. The answer to Jesus is pretty obvious. It's a rhetorical question. He says, no, of course not. No, God, the reason they were masters is not because they're worse than you are. He says, but let me use this as an example. Let me use this as an illustration. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, unless you do what I've called you to do, unless you listen to the words that I've come to give you, you also will perish. You'll meet that same end. Or those 18 on whom the tower and Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Again, the answer to Jesus is rhetorical. No. No, they weren't. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I've found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So Jesus here, again, makes this connection between repentance and life. He says, if you don't repent, you will perish. And then in the parable, he says it a different way. If you don't bear fruit, you will be cut down. It's a pretty harsh words from Jesus. In fact, this is seen as one of the harsher things Jesus says in the Gospels. Repent or perish, bear fruit or be cut down. Now, the, when we read things, the tone in which we imagine it's said plays an important role. Okay, this email can sometimes get confusing, right? Because you, you don't know exactly the tone um, that was given to you, okay? Never text back the word or the letter K with a period, right? I mean, it, yeah, it's just like, what did I do wrong, okay? About to be interventioned. What is going on here? Um, you, you can't communicate kind of tone through, through that language, um, that medium of language, all that easily. Um, I think we naturally assume Jesus is speaking here with the tone of an angry street preacher. You know what I'm talking about? On the curb, right? Yelling at the sinners who pass by. Going in to watch the evil movies, right? The moving pictures. (laughs) Hollywood. (laughs) Repent or perish or God will strike you down or pounce on you. Turn to him. You'll be destroyed. What if instead, though, the tone is the tone of a loving and concerned father figure who says, hey, this, this way of life, this path you're on, is going to end the same way it ended for these people. And I don't want you to go there. Repent, or you'll perish. Bear fruit, or you're going to be cut down. In fact, this is the picture you give Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke and the Gospels. Jesus later in Luke will look out over Jerusalem, God's city, and he'll cry. The picture you give Jesus is not that he's saying, do what I say or I'm going to pounce on you. The picture is, why won't you listen to me? Why won't you understand that the path you're on is going to end badly? 
Jesus says, how often have I desired to throw myself over you like a bird would cover it with its wings its young and protect you from the, the coming destruction? But you haven't realized today is the day for you to come and find life. Repent or perish. This, this idea of repentance, I think sometimes we get it wrong. Repent, um, this word here in the Greek, it means to turn. Okay, To turn, and simply to turn from a sin life to a kingdom life. To turn from a life characterized by sin, by disobedience, by selfishness, by greed. And then to turn to a life characterized by kingdom qualities. The qualities that Jesus exemplifies for us. Living selflessly. Living in obedience to the Lord. Living a worshipful life. Um, sometimes we think of repentance just as like a remorseful feeling. Like to feel bad about your sin. But in fact, emotions are not implied at all in this idea. It's just a simple turning. You could feel bad. You could feel okay. Um, it's just this kind of concentrated, intentional effort that I'm going to leave this and start this. You're turning from a sin life to a kingdom life. And now when we read things like this repent or perish, um, bear fruit or cut down, and we think about repentance, I think we get tripped up a little bit. Um, I think there's a couple misunderstandings that keep us from truly understanding and recognizing and appreciating the link between repentance and life. Okay, so let me, let me unpack two of these for you. I think the first misunderstanding is this. We often, because of where we are in history and, and in the world and just in our culture, we often think of sin in terms of legal terms, in, in law court terms. We think of sin as legal, and then we think of it as arbitrary. We think of sin as um, breaking a law, breaking a rule, and we're not quite sure why the rule was there to begin with. It's kind of an impersonal act, much like if you were to break a law of the land, okay? A law sent down from the White House or from the Texas um, governor's office, okay? So you're on the highway, and you're speeding. You're going 75 and a 65, okay? Um, and you probably don't feel like you're really attacking somebody, right? You're probably not, like, worried that, oh, I hope the government doesn't find out I did this. They're going to be so mad at me, right? It's this impersonal law. It's just this, this legal law, and it was put down arbitrarily. Um, you could probably postulate some of the reasons why maybe they, they put the speed limit there, but you don't really know why. It might as well have been 75, right? 65, 75. Um, it's just kind of this arbitrary number that somebody picked, right? You have no kind of emotional attachment to following it. I'm sure if you break it, have broken it today, you, you're probably not going to lose sleep over it, right? I mean, you're not going to... It's, it's not something that's going to really affect you that much. It's kind of this legal standing, this kind of arbitrary law that's, uh, that's put on top of you. Sometimes we, we think of that, I think, in terms of, of sin, in terms of um, disobeying God, okay? It's, it's this kind of legal thing. When we disobey God, when we do something he's asked us not to do, um, it's, it's kind of like breaking a law, just this kind of impersonal thing, and, and we might feel like we may be guilty, and we might worry that we're going to get caught. But other than that, it doesn't really eat us up. It doesn't really make us think. We don't, we're not really feeling like we're offending somebody or going against somebody that, that knows us and loves us or anything like that. And then we think it's kind of arbitrary. I mean, being around high schoolers, um, this is the, the thing you, you get the most, right? A lot of God's rules don't make sense. So I want you to imagine, just like objectively, Try to take yourself out of the life that you've known. And then objectively try to imagine adults telling 15 and 16-year-old kids in like the midst of puberty not to have sex. Do you see the absurdity of it? I mean, it's just kind of the worst timing in the world, right? And so, in fact, if you look back at history, kids got married pretty young, usually right around the age puberty hit. Problem avoided, right? I mean, they didn't deal with, when you ask, like, you know, Back in the first century, were they really worried about premarital sex? Not really. I guess usually you were kind of married around that age, right? Um, but, but we ask kids 
to wait 10, 15, 20 years, and then we tell them not to have sex. And I mean, do you realize their physical body, right, is 100% going in the opposite direction? And they hear that God doesn't want them to do that, and they're going, that seems absurd. And it seems ridiculous. Who decided that law? I want an appeal. <laughs> I want a hearing. I want some explanations. And if we're honest, the explanations we usually give for that specific example are pretty, pretty crummy. You'll get an STD, you'll get pregnant. We give, like, fear-based reasons. Which, correct me if I'm wrong, if most of the world understands that you can get an STD and get an unwanted pregnancy by having sex before you're, before you're married, um, they understand that. Do they still do it? Yeah, it's risk-reward, okay? We're going to roll the dice on that. And so we tell our kids, Christian kids, the same thing, and then we're surprised when they act the same way, right? Maybe we should give a theological reason, a reason about God and faith and what we believe about the world, if we're going to expect them. I mean, even, like, hope that they might act in a different way than that. But it's this kind of arbitrary law, right? Why is it there? Who put it there? Who decided it was there? Maybe it should be changed from way back when. In reality, though, in the scripture, sin, I think, is better thought of as relational. So instead of breaking like a, a law of the land from far away, imagine, if you would, parents who love their kids. I mean, these are good parents. They love their kids. They pour into their kids. take care of their kids. They pray for their kids. They sacrifice for their kids. And their kids grow up and just choose the wrong path. They're thieves, drop out of school, get into drugs, get into the wrong crowd. Over and over and over again, they betray their parents. They break their trust. I don't know if you know parents like this. Sometimes the best parents can have kids who just go, go away. It's not a magic formula. And I don't know if you've seen the look on a, on a couple's eyes when they've spent 20 years caring for this this person and this person just will not get it they continue to hurt them and break their trust and betray them this wayward son this wayward daughter i think this is the better picture of sin in a biblical portrait god creates and he creates out of love and he's close to his creation he loves his creation and his creation continually over and over and over again no matter what refuses to listen to him and continues to walk off the path if you're if you're reading the bible canonically so as a whole Everything after Genesis 3 is grace. Does that make sense? Everything after the fall, the fact that he doesn't destroy it all, is all patient. It's all him going, okay, come on, let's fix this. Let's just slow down, let's breathe, think about what you're doing. Let's not do anything rash here. This is wayward son, this wayward daughter. Um, and, and so sin, relational, and then in the scriptures as well, we might say this, it's logical. <clears throat> and by logical, I mean natural, like cause and effect. Um, it's not arbitrary. The consequence for sin is not arbitrary. Um, so think about, I mean, we usually think the consequence for sin is, again, like the consequences that the government gives us, right? It could be different. <coughs> so you could get a $200 fine for spitting, or they could change their mind and give you a $500 fine, right? It's up to them. There's no actual reason that they have to give you a certain amount of fine. We think that's how it works with sin. In scripture, though, sin is a natural thing. Sin is the only thing that can happen, or, or death, the punishment for sin, is the only thing that can happen if you sin. Think of, of God as like a son, okay? If, if you turn away from the sun and walk the other way, all you're going to find is darkness and coldness. There's no other option. You've left the one source of, of light and warmth. 
The Psalms say all our good is found in God. God is the source of all good and all life and all beauty. And so to turn from him, to sin, is only to find things that are not beautiful and are not good and that are not full of life. It's a, it's a natural consequence. It's a natural result. It's logical. James makes this connection. He says, desires give birth to sin. So we, we want to do something with birth to sin. And in sin, when it's fully grown, leads to death. And again, this is not an arbitrary punishment given by God. As if he's like, you know what? You're going to disobey me. Boom, death. This is him saying, what did you expect? I can't do anything for you. Over there is not life. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. He says, God can't give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself. Do you know why? There is none. It's not that he's being mean to you. I mean, there is no other life you can find outside of him. So again, go back to our, 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 our meth analogy, okay? Our, our drug addiction analogy. It's a consequence. It's a natural consequence. If you take meth in four years, this is what's going to happen to your body. And so someone who comes to a meth addict and says, stop doing this or you're going to die, is not saying, stop doing this in four years, I'm going to kill you. And be like, haha, I told you, stop it, do what I say. They're saying, stop doing this because the only way out of this is death. There's no other option if you keep acting this way. It leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. This is why in the scriptures, the law is seen as this beautiful thing. The law, again, it's not this arbitrary thing laid down over us by God. The law is God whispering to us to find life. Saying, not there, not there, not there. Come this way, come this way, come this way. So that's why they rejoice in the law. Without the law, we'd be idiots. We'd be in the dark. We'd be stumbling around only finding death. But God, in his love and his wisdom, has given us, come close to us and given us instructions. Law. Sin, it, it leads to death. And, and the second misunderstanding is this. That salvation is simply forgiveness. And we've kind of done this in our kind of Protestant cultures. We've, we've made salvation into this kind of legal fiction uh, where it's really not connected to reality. Okay, so um, what I mean by that is what we're after is forgiveness, right? We want the consequences of this arbitrary punishment to be taken away from us. Uh, so we just want God to say, I don't care anymore. You're forgiven. It's over, right? Don't worry about it. Um, so God will say, you're not a sinner, even though if you were to like videotape your life, you're what? A sinner. It's this legal fiction. God's making something up in this fictitious world, right? That's not true in your own life. But again, um, in the scriptures, throughout the entire scriptures, salvation is much more than forgiveness. It involves forgiveness, but it also inherently involves transformation. Freedom. Again, think of our, our drug analogy, okay, for sin. Someone's, someone's doing meth family member comes to them and says, you're forgiven. They say, I'm sorry. They say, I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter, right? And they keep doing meth. What's going to happen to them? Forgiveness means nothing at that point. I mean, they're, they're still going to find the death that comes with those decisions. They're still going to find the natural outcome of that way of life. They don't need just forgiveness. They need freedom, transformation. They need to be able to walk out of those ways that intrinsically lead to bad paths. This is what Jesus is saying when he shows us to repent or perish. This is why Daniel says and understands that the exile will end when we repent. Because repentance 
is where life is found. And without repentance, there is no life to be found. Without turning from our sin and turning to, to God. So the meth addict, the sin addict, needs to, to learn how to do different things. And to learn how to have different kinds of fun. Needs to learn how to have new community. Needs to learn how to avoid temptations and distractions. There has to be this whole lifestyle change that goes into this act of repentance. That's why, again, Martin Luther says every day is a day of repentance for Christians. Not because God's upset at you. Not because he doesn't want you to have fun. But because as we anticipate the exile to end, God has graciously invited us to find life and more life and more life and more life and more life. And that's only found through the process of confessing our sins and turning away from them. So go with me to 2 Corinthians 7. Let me wrap this up this morning by maybe imagining out loud a few ways that we could involve this process of repentance in our daily lives. So I'll give you three keys real quick here to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 is a a pretty famous passage on repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Holy Spirit says this. For godly grief, godly sorrow, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I mean, watch the wording very closely. Godly sorrow produces repentance, creates repentance, and the repentance goes somewhere. The path of that life leads somewhere. And where is it? Salvation. Again, this sounds awfully like like works righteousness, like we're somehow earning something, right? But this is not, it's just the intrinsic link between it. There is no salvation outside of repentance. God can't give you salvation outside of repentance. It's not there to be found. It's not there to be offered to you. But godly sorrow over our sins produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. So there's these two types of sorrow kind of compared to each other. Worldly sorrow, um, I mean, you probably think of it as, as kind of horizontal, or it's the kind of sorrowful that you get when you're caught, right? You're not sorry you did it, but you're sorry you got caught about it. I mean, really sorry. And Children, a lot, right? I'm not sorry I got caught. I do it in 30 seconds. Soon you turn your back. But I'm really, really upset that you found me doing it. I'm going to be punished for this. Worldly sorrow. It's a sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. Doesn't lead to change. Which means that death is the only result. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. Without regret. It's kind of an understatement by Paul, right? It's like, you won't regret being saved. <laughs> well, of course, right? I mean, think of, it, again, an addict who's now been free to those certain patterns and, and how happy they are that they're out of those ways of life. They're not going to regret maybe the painful decisions that sometimes had to take place for them to walk out of that. Godly, girl, godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. Um, number one, first key, we need to repent. You and I need to repent. We need to repent daily out of our identity as beloved children. This is important. We don't repent to earn God's love for us. We repent because God loves us. Does that make sense? There's a big difference there. We don't repent so that God will change his mind about us. We repent because God has always loved us, and he's always invited us. And now through Christ and the Spirit, he's made a way for us. From start to finish, it's God's grace. It's God's grace that you can repent. It's God's grace that his Spirit will encourage you and give you the strength and power to walk out of those sinful behaviors. We repent out of our identity as beloved children. You'll see this in the show Intervention, right? Oftentimes the pattern, the way it works, is that 
Um, an addict will participate in their, their addiction, and then they'll come down and feel awful and feel shamed and guilty. And then that feeling of shame and guilt leads them where? Back to the bottle, back to the pill, back to the needle to escape over and over and over and over again. What they need is a break in the cycle. They need that shame and guilt to not lead them there anymore. It's what Christ offers us. The Spirit gives us. You're loved. Christ has died for you. He's offered his Spirit for you. You're not trying to earn his love. That shame and guilt should not lead you back to your sin. You should run straight to the Father who loves you every time you fall. So many Christians are in this cycle of sin. But we try really hard and then we fall. And because we fall, we feel like God doesn't like us. And we can't turn to God. And so then we just go back into sin. It's just this awful cycle that keeps going down and down and down and down. And it finds death and only death. We break the cycle. Even when we fall, we're loved. This changes nothing. God, through Christ and the Spirit, will give me the grace to follow him. And so I go back and back and back to the cross. I go back and back and back to the throne. Number two. Um, repentance requires us to identify our sin. So you can't repent, you can't confess, you can't walk out if you don't know what you're walking out of. Um, what ways, what lifestyles, what behaviors you participate in that are, are sinful. Well, it's not a fun activity, but it's necessary. If you, if you never do this, you'll never find repentance. Perhaps one of the things we do sometimes is, is we just ignore our life so much that we don't even have the option of repenting. I mean, we've never assessed ourselves never looked at our lives. When was the last time you sat down, and it might be a weird question to you, but said, what are the obvious sins that I can identify in my life? What are the, the patterns in my life that I can easily say, that's not kingdom. That doesn't look like Jesus. Until you do that, I mean, you really have no option of leaving those things, or walking out of those things. When was the last time you prayed that prayer? That God revealed to me all the ways in my life where I walk away from you. Give me your spirit. Give me your, give me your gift of sight. You've got to be able to identify it. That's why Daniel names the sins of Israel. And number three, repentance must be an active process. It has to be something you do. It doesn't happen by accident. You don't accidentally wake up and you're godly. It's something that's intentional. It's something that takes a plan. It's something that takes discipline. It's something that takes second tries and third tries and fourth tries and fifth tries. And my hope is that when I'm 80, I'll be on my thousandth try. I'll be getting back up and going back to the Lord and saying, I want to find you. I want to be close to you. I want to walk away from my sin. It's something that's an intentional process. And in all of these things, I never want you to lose out on this, this sense of the need for a community, for, for believers around you to help you with this. I've said it once. I've said it a thousand times. You, you can't do this Christian thing on your own. You've got to have a group of people who know you and love you and walk with you, who can remind you that you're loved when you fall. And you feel awful. You feel like no one could love you. God can't love you. You can't even love yourself. You need a group of people to say, don't listen to that. That's a lie. He loves you. You need someone who can identify your sin. <laughs> Call getting married. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, that's so I'm told. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've said this before. You're a really good liar to you. And I'm a really good liar to myself. But other people can point out hypocrisy and, and error and falsehood real quickly. Now, this gets messy, and this gets painful, and this hurts. That's why I would always say, never identify someone's sin if they haven't invited you to. 
Just because you know their name does not mean you get to disciple them. But this is why I'd also say, how about you invite somebody? How about you get to know somebody that you love and that you trust and you say, hey, have you ever seen anything? Will you let me know? I promise to do my best not to react badly. This is my invitation for you to speak truth into my life. Help me identify these things. And then you need a community to help you with this plan, to help you avoid these temptations, to help you figure out what it means to live these new ways of life that sometimes be really hard to figure out and really hard to walk in. I think oftentimes we need to repent of these little things that have found their way into our lives. Like these little, these little things of, of anxiety, distrust. These little neurotic sins that have worked their way themselves into us, having to be in control of everything. It's the certain relationship or this certain certain circumstance in my life. So this morning, as Daniel hopes for and waits for the exile to end, for the punishment to be over, and adopts this posture of repentance, I want to invite you as we rejoice in Christ's sacrifice for us, as we wait for the day when he'll come and recreate all things, that we would adopt this posture of repentance. Maybe this morning you'd ask, what in my life do I need to repent of? How can I do that? Who can help me with that? And that you'd realize repentance is this thing that leads to life. Not this burdensome, awful, painful thing. It's this beautiful, life-giving thing. Christ died so that you could repent. He rose again so that you could repent. And because God knew you needed it, he gave you the Holy Spirit so that you could repent. This is the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah. I put my law on the inside. I'll transform you from the inside. I'll give you my own very spirit so that you can walk in these new ways of life. And so I invite you this morning to continue on this journey of following and walking in these new ways of life. Let's pray together.